Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Samantha Baldessari. Samantha is the post-secondary coordinator at CB Community Schools in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Well, welcome, Sam. I am so glad to have you as part of our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. I am very excited to learn about your organization. But before we get to that, would you please share a little about yourself and how it is that you became connected with the foster care system? Sure. My background is actually as an English teacher. In grad school, I studied English and writing. As as a part of my grad program, I began teaching in the freshman English courses at various schools, and I just really fell in love with teaching. But also in undergrad, I had studied psychology as well. And at some point, even though you know I loved teaching, I started to feel this pull that maybe I wanted to get involved with social work or therapy or something related to that field. So I was talking about, you know, kind of feeling torn about this with my dad one day. And just to back up, my dad has worked as a child advocate lawyer for over 20 years, representing youth in foster care through the Support Center for Child Advocates in Philadelphia. He really was my introduction to the foster care system. He's dedicated a lot of time to working with foster youth. He knows about the system, the injustices, and has talked to me about that growing up. So he was the person that really got me interested in the system. When I was having, you know, this struggle, I was talking to him and he said, you know, I think there might be a way for you to do both. He said that he had met this woman who had this school and he didn't know much about it at the time, but I wound up looking up the website and it was CB Community School. And I just remember they had a couple videos of student stories talking about the school and what it meant to them and how it felt more like a family and how they felt that they were more successful, had more support. And I just remember, you know, watching these videos and just crying. I was so touched by what the students were sharing. Eventually, I was able to meet the founder of our school, Roberta Trombetta. So my dad at that time was representing a CB student and He has represented her since she was five years old, and she's 21 now. She just graduated from CB last year. But that's how he actually met the founder of the school, because one thing, and I'll talk about this more later, but CB sends people from our school to court with the students to be advocates for them. So that's kind of how he came in touch with her. And, you know, from there, I took a couple trips out to the school, fell in love with it, and that was my journey to CB. So my job now at the school is post-secondary coordinator. My role centers around all of the needs of our eligible graduates. At CB, and again, I'll touch on this more later, but we don't have freshmen through senior. We have eligible graduates and not yet eligible graduates, which is completely based on their amount of credits. So, you know, we can't really base this on age because, as you know, there's a lot of disruptions to their education a lot of the time. So we change our language not to be freshmen through senior. We have eligible graduates. My role is really everything to do with them. That includes offering all of our individual post-secondary counseling. So really getting to sit down with each of our students and have those conversations about what do they dream to do one day or to study one day or to be one day. It's always interesting because some of our kids 
have really never been asked that question. I think it's Trevor Noah has a quote about, we tell people to follow their dreams, but you can only dream of what you can imagine. And depending on where you come from, your imagination can be limited. So that's something that we encounter with our kids, not really knowing what their options are for when they leave the school. So we go through all of their options and my job is to connect them to the right resources. I also manage all of the partnerships that we have with post-secondary institutions. CB really celebrates every post-secondary pathway that a student can take. That's colleges, but it's also trade schools. It's also certification programs. I manage all of our partnerships. We do tours and visits to the campuses, you know, when there's not a pandemic. (laughs) But we did a lot of virtual tours and presentations this year of different post-secondary institutions. And we typically do a post-secondary fair at the school to connect kids to resources. I also manage the mentorship program, which I would love to get into more a little bit later um, about what our mentorship looks like. I do our alumni relations and keep in touch with our alums. But I think my favorite part of my role is to teach the capstone English course to the graduates, because I feel like this is where I really get to know them really well and form those relationships and that trust. Our capstone English is You know, it's a typical English course in that there's reading, writing, researching, analyzing text, but it also has this element of personal and self-reflection. We read a lot of different memoirs. We actually read Trevor Noah's memoir. We read, you know, a couple different memoirs and really reflect on this question of how can I relate to someone who seems like they have nothing in common with me? We have them writing personal narratives, you know, telling their stories. We have a couple kids present their personal narratives to the school, which was really touching. We have poetry. And in their last trimester in the course, the students actually create the typical senior or capstone project. So they do really in-depth research about a topic and present it to kind of a panel of our team members. And they were just excellent this year. I was really happy with them. We had Just to give you some examples, one of our young mothers did a presentation on the benefits of breastfeeding because she has a goal to become a lactation consultant. And we also had a student who just in his personal life had suffered a lot of memory loss issues because of trauma and an injury that he had. So he did his whole presentation about adolescent memory loss. It's really, really interesting and amazing to see, you know, the topics the kids choose. They read college level text. They really go in depth and do these big presentations where we can all kind of come together as a community and celebrate them. That's a lot of what I do. I think the whole graduate component of CB is really important because the average CB student has already been to three to four high schools by the time they get to us. And some of them have been to as many as eight high schools. Some of them, by the time they get to us, are skeptical that high school will even work for them. You know, they haven't had that consistency and not every high school is equipped to understand and meet the needs that they have. I was just going to say, I I mean, I can relate to that because I went to four different high schools in three different states Okay. when I was in foster care. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like there's a lot of disruptions and a lack of continuity And I was just going to point out that in Philadelphia, only 44% of youth in foster care actually get a high school diploma. 
But at our school, that number is 92%. So we can really see that what we're doing, the kind of model that we have is working for the kids. Sure, that's wonderful. Well, how long have you been there in the role that you're in? So I'm heading into my third year. So I started back in 2019. Wonderful. And about how many students do you have in a year's time? So our school serves about 60, 65 students in any given year. We're a very small private school. But in terms of the eligible graduates, I would probably have between nine and 13 kids any given year, which is great because it's so small that I can really form those relationships and have those conversations because it's just a handful of kids. So that really works for us, I think. And is it a residential school or is it more like a public school where they have to get to you from wherever they're living? They have to get to us. Yeah. We're not residential. I think that's something that maybe when we expand and grow, that's something that I think is on the table that we're considering. But right now, no, we are not. So our kids are all over the city. We're in Roxborough, which is a suburb right outside Philly. But our kids, some of our kids take you know, they rely on SEPTA, our public transportation. So they take two to three buses to get to us. And it's my understanding, just looking at some numbers in Pennsylvania, because AOI is based in Pennsylvania, so I've looked this up, is that Philadelphia and the Philadelphia area has the highest number of foster youth aging out of the system than any other city, town, Mm. county in the state. Yeah, definitely. And population is part of that. But How do the young people apply and become accepted? I'm just curious what the process would be if you're taking young people from all over the city. How does that work? Our school's been around for six years. So, you know, it's fairly new. And in the beginning, I think it was more on us and on the founders of the school to be advertising it, to be, you know, advocating for this as an option for students, to judges, to social workers, advocate lawyers. At this point, we actually have a reputation where people in the system know about our school. We're kind of seen as an option for kids that are struggling at every other school, really can't seem to get their footing or are in danger of being sent to a residential facility. We basically have a reputation now where a judge could say, you know, you could go to placement or you can go to CB Community School. One of our founding members, our student services director, Sloan Carter, has, you know, she's just very well known in the city and has a lot of connections. So I think through knowing her, she's the person that does the interview processes with the students that are interested in the school. And she's just very well known. So she knows a lot of kids that need help and people know to refer students to her. We even have a student is so funny who told us that she heard about us on the bus one day, you know, just people in her circle were talking about, I heard there's this school, it's really small, it kind of works. And she expressed interest and told her DHS worker and then ended up with us. So it's kind of word of mouth in that way, but there is an interview process to be admitted to the mm-hmm. school. And young people have to be currently in the system to be able to go to your school? They do not have to be currently in the system. Most of our students are. There are a couple cases where we've taken kids who were in danger of going into the system as sort of a diversion, but not everyone has to be currently in the system. And also, if you are a CB student and you, you know, leave care, you absolutely can stay with us 
it's not that you have to currently be in the system. Yeah. And I was going to ask the question, well, do young people have to come in as freshmen? And I caught myself and wait, they don't have freshmen, (laughs) sophomore, junior, seniors. It's based on credit. So it really wouldn't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. They could come in at any point. You assess where they are in the credits and then determine their path from there, correct? Exactly. So we have kids that start with us when they only have three credits left. We have kids that start with us, they're 21 years old, they have three credits left or one credit left and just couldn't, you know, whatever disruption happened, they couldn't get it done in another school. So we absolutely do not take kids. It's not required that they start with us at the beginning of their high school experience, and most often they don't. Okay. And so it sounds like it really is strictly the number of credits that delineates the the eligible graduates from those who aren't eligible yet? Yes, that's correct. That's a really interesting model. I have not heard of that model before. Is that unique or did you base that on another organization that you found out about? I'm curious how that came about. I'm not a founding member of the school, so I'm not sure if it's based on another model, but It is something that I believe is unique to our school. It's not something that I've encountered other places either, but it's kind of born out of this need for kids to finish up just a few credits. So often that happens and they have a lot of inconsistency with their credits. A lot of, you know, when you move from school to school, as you know, sometimes those credits don't follow you in the way that they should have. So there's a lot of difficulty to actually get the credits to follow the student, the ones that they have earned and have a right to. So that's another thing that we really work to do to, you know, our education director really works to call every other school a student has been to and figure out how many credits they have. Because for some of our kids, it can be devastating to realize you know, those eight credits I earned in another school haven't followed me. So that's a big issue that we face. But yeah, that's how we do it. We say you're an eligible graduate if you have basically six credits or less. Mm, Okay. How about how many staff do you have? We have about 17, 18 staff members total. Okay. So you have teachers. Right. And you have a building, right? So there's probably some maintenance needs there, right? Yes, we have teachers. We also have a whole SEL department, social-emotional learning department. Just to get into that a little bit, you know, our whole SEL department work closely with the kids around behaviors, trauma they've experienced, any emotional needs that they have. And we have social workers on our staff who know about every student's case, who go to court with them, who then, you know, come back and communicate those things to our team so that our teachers can stay informed about what's happening in a student's life. It's mostly, you know, just the teachers and the SEL team make up our staff. Okay. You said you manage the partnerships as well. What are some of the partnerships? I would imagine the, their support services. I know you mentioned a couple, but I'm just thinking about how do you shore up the other areas that a young people might need support in through the partnerships? I manage the post-secondary partnerships. So any kind of partnership we would have with a post-secondary institution, I manage those by making sure they you know, have the information about them, that we go visit them, that we take tours, that the students have access to the information to apply to these places. And I help them through that process. That's kind of one bucket of partnerships. But we also have more SEL related partnerships for our students. A few of those would be 
Beyond the Bars, which is a music program that comes in and the kids can actually make their own music, create their own beats. We have Dancing with the Students come in. We have a group called EF Philly. We also have the ELECT program, which is for our young mothers. So on average, 20% of CB students are parents per year. So we do have some you know, really incredible moms at CB that we love to celebrate. We actually just graduated two of our young mothers in June. So we have support for them through our elect program. We had a parenting class for them as well. And another big one, a big partnership is our grief group, which unfortunately is really needed for our kids, especially over the past year. Almost 100% of our students have lost a loved one throughout the pandemic time, whether that was to the illness itself or to gun violence in the city. Some of our kids have lost up to five people throughout the last year. So grief group is necessary. We also have individual counseling. We have a clinic for individual therapy that the kids can access and sign up for at the school. So those are just some of our more social emotional partnerships that we do. Yeah, that's great. Now, you had mentioned one, you said something Philly, but I didn't catch what that was. Uh, yeah, Philly, it's called Y-E-A-H. I can't remember what the acronym stands for off the top of my head, but they do a lot of social justice work. I remember going down where the kids have the group and I saw them making posters about stop the violence in our neighborhoods. They took a trip to Outward Bound, which is another partnership where they can kind of do ropes courses in nature and play outside and do stuff like that. So yeah, Philly has been a really wonderful partnership. That's great. Well, I'm going to put links to all these that you've mentioned in the podcast awesome. notes. So Absolutely. if anybody's curious about them, particularly if you're <laughs> in the Philly area, yeah. you, can, uh, you can look them up. So how is it that your, or you said it was a private school, how is the organization funded? Sure. So mostly we are funded by private donors. We also have someone on staff who applies to a lot of grants that really helps fund our school. And we also get some funding from DHS, but we don't get any funding from the Philadelphia School District. We just get private donations, DHS, grants, that kind of thing. Wonderful. And while we're talking about it, at some point in each interview, I ask if anybody did want to donate to your organization, where should they go to do that? Sure. You can go right on our website. There's a link to donate, cbcommunityschools.org. It's schools plural. <laughs> I always make sure mm -hmm. to say that. So you can go <laughs> on our website and there's a link to donate right on the page. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. So for those of you who are so inclined to provide a donation, I'm sure that will be greatly appreciated. Oh, very much so. <laughs> All right. I know we want to get to the mentor program. Definitely want to talk about that. But I am curious if you help young people, and maybe this is the tie-in, this could be a great segue. Do you help the young people get ready for things like housing, for employment, learning life skills, and so forth? I know you're a school, so there's the academic side, but you've mentioned a mentor program, and I'm just wondering if that's where these other things might come into play. Yeah, so I definitely want to get more into how our academics are really structured differently at our school, because I do think the way that that's structured prepares our kids for when they leave us. So just sort of like I said, we don't have freshmen through senior all of our language is a little bit different. So we don't do the grading scale in the typical ABCD system. 
Instead, our grades are competent, highly competent, or not yet competent. So that's where CB comes from, competency-based high school. Oh, okay. Yes. (laughs) People always ask that. Yes, that's where it comes from. This way, with this language and this grading system, we can really take out that language of failure that really has not served our students in the past as other schools and focus instead on moving forward so that, you know, if a student does have a major disruption in their life that takes them out of school for a period of time, which does happen, they can always come back and resume where they left off with us in terms of their schoolwork. The student has to prove 80% competency at each skill in the class. So meaning they don't pass without earning at least an 80. And this is really a huge shift for some of our students. Looking through transcripts, we see a lot of our kids come to us that were passed with all Ds in all of their classes. So it can be a really tough transition for them at our school to be told, this isn't right, do it again, or I need to see another draft of this. But that is something that we hold them to that standard. They have to show 80% competency in order to move forward. But if they don't, they didn't fail, they're just not yet competent because you can always go back and work towards it. I think that's something that really does help prepare our kids for their transition because it's not just doing the minimum, which might have been accepted at another institution. It's, no, we really want you to learn the work. We know that you can, and we expect that from them. That's kind of how our structure is different than, you know, a typical high school. Yeah, absolutely. And is that a tough adjustment for some of the young people? Yes, very much so. We do have students push back sometimes saying, well, I did it and want us to accept that it was done once. But this is really a learning process that I think is so important for them to learn. Just because you did it once doesn't mean that it's correct yet or doesn't mean that you're ready to move forward or that you've learned it to a competent level. So it can be a tough adjustment for them. Yeah, I can see that. And how do you address competence gaps coming into the school? I know that a lot of schools, I don't want to say all schools, of course, but there are schools that will just pass kids through, even though they don't really have the competence that they should moving through the grades. And so I would imagine you run into some of that. And do you do any kind of work to help catch the young people up to where they should be? And maybe the other areas, because I know they're coming in based on credits, but maybe in any of the other areas that they don't necessarily need classes in, but there's an obvious gap. Yeah. And that is something that we see a lot where, you know, you're teaching a class and you might not even realize that a student has this specific gap in their knowledge of something. All of our teachers, I think, are really attuned to that. So when I start you know, teaching a new concept in class, I always start by asking, what do you know about this? Have you ever heard of this before? And we kind of are minded that way as teachers at this school to kind of try to uncover the gaps from the beginning. But we also have special ed teachers who run reading and math interventions with the students. We do something called maths testing where we can check levels, especially with reading and math, and then try to adjust the attention that each student is receiving based on those gaps that we're uncovering together in class. We're very minded towards that as teachers at the school. And there are interventions that we do, reading interventions. And we try to do something called universal design with our classes, where we offer a number of different pathways for each student to do the work. 
maybe one student really has reading trouble, well, then teachers will link the audio recording to whatever book they're reading so that that student can listen to it because that's where they are right now in terms of their reading. I read aloud with my kids a lot in class and try to just provide those different avenues based on what kind of learner each student is so that they can all reach success, even with whatever gap that they're facing in their education. But I would imagine you also provide some kind of tutoring or if somebody really does have an issue and Mm -hmm. problems reading, that you identify that and you would have some way to help them improve? Yes. So we have, like I said, our special education teachers work with them one-on-one. And we also have a Title I tutor who is at our school, you know, all day, every day, working with kids that have been identified as having these gaps and working with them around those skills. This is a little bit off to the side, but did you have to do remote learning during the COVID (laughs) shutdown? We did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was difficult. You know, I know every teacher at every school feels that way, but I think with our population specifically, it was extremely difficult to adjust to online learning. We did it. I think a lot of kids really put in that effort to get on and meet with their teachers. And a lot of students were successful with it, but a lot of students really struggled in the online format. So as soon as we could open our building again, we did, you know, socially distant and safe with AM and PM cohorts and everything we needed to do. But that was a big priority for us to get back in the building. And one thing that you mentioned before is that At other schools, sometimes kids are just pushed through regardless of these gaps, uh, regardless of kind of what work they're producing in class. And one thing that I think is, you know, to our credit in COVID, a lot of schools graduated students without having them complete the year. We did not do that. So our 2020 graduates, we moved our graduation back to August. And we opened our building so that just our 2020 graduates could come in and meet with their teachers in a socially distant way, finish their work, because we were not going to say that they could graduate without actually finishing their work. It was incredible to see how excited they were first to come back into the building. It was really heartbreaking to have to tell them that we were closed, have to field these questions of when can I come back and not have an answer for them? But when we did open the building for our 2020 graduates, we were able to keep our 90% graduation rate that year and they finished and they graduated, which was really incredible. Yeah, that's fantastic. The first high school I went to was a very, very small school down in North Carolina. And the graduating class itself was about 40 kids. And we were all so close because it was such a small school. Mm -hmm. Yours is even smaller. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's real strong friendships. So I could envision the COVID scenario where you have to be remote as being particularly challenging and hard for these young people because it's almost family. Absolutely. Yes. And a lot of kids say that they talk about CB like it's a second home or a second family. And it definitely was really difficult for them to have the building. It was difficult for all of us. Our whole community really missed being together at that time. So I'm just so grateful that we're we're back in person. Yeah. Now, one other thing before we move on, you had mentioned earlier trimesters. Does Mm -hmm. that mean you have summer classes as well? Is that what that means? 
So we do three trimesters during the school year, but we do also have a summer program. Mm -hmm. So right now we have that going on. So it's this year, it's mostly credit recovery. So any kid that didn't finish a certain class has the opportunity to come in and work with that teacher to finish so that, you know, they don't fall behind when they start next year. But we also have other programming at the school, like internship programs, where we actually pay the kids to come do this art project that they're working on with our art teacher. So that's one thing we're doing. We also have an urban gardening program over the summer where the kids have been growing just really incredible, you know, cucumbers and pepper, everything. Like they just grow everything in the urban garden at the school. And that's another program that we're running over the summer. I love that they have the opportunity to learn about gardening mm-hmm. and where food comes from. Mm-hmm. So many young people just have no clue. So what comes from the grocery store? <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. and they don't know what it takes to grow something that is going to be food. And so I love that you have that. Yeah, exactly. No, it's been awesome. We had a salad bar uh, a couple of weeks ago with just the food that they had grown in the garden. So it's been really, really cool to watch them go through that process. If you're familiar with the Milton Hershey School mm-hmm. in Hershey, Pennsylvania, yeah. mm-hmm. they have young people tap maple trees oh, wow. and they actually make maple syrup and then they have a huge pancake breakfast and all the staff's invited and students are invited and they make the pancakes and they made the syrup and it's just, it's just oh, great. I love it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I definitely want to hear about your mentor program. Sure. So why don't we switch over to that and let us know what that program's all about. Sure. So our mentorship program was basically born out of this need for our students to have more caring adults just invested in their lives. We always say, you know, how many of us would find motivation to go to school, to do well in school if we didn't have an adult that cared whether or not we did those things? So we wanted to basically give our students more people who would care about them, be invested in their lives, their futures, and offer them the support that they need. We launched the program in February of 2020, which, of course, was not a great time to launch anything now. (laughs) We know that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it still endured despite all of those disruptions of the pandemic. So we brought the mentors in, which are just people from the community, from the staff, use their own personal circles to talk about the school, get people interested. So professionals in the community, we brought them in and we did a training with them about mentorship. We used Joanna Greeson's care model for the natural mentor. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's a podcast about that in the AOI collection. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We, (laughs) we used her materials to train our mentors, which was incredibly helpful And the whole idea is for the mentor to know us, to know our language, our CB language, and to learn about our kids with our support, and then for their relationship to continue after the student graduates so that, you know, they would have this advocate with them that can be, we can support them, they can support us in helping the students' needs. We've seen a lot of success with the program already, despite, you know, the big disruption of the pandemic. We have students who have gone on job shadowing experiences with their mentors who, you know, go to their mentor for advice academically, professionally, but really the main thing as we see it for our kids is that personal relationship. So we have students who spend their birthdays with their mentor. They've gone out, you know, trying different restaurants, different types of food that maybe the student hasn't tried before, that kind of thing. 
and really just, you know, that personal relationship is, I see that as the foundation to the program. So we want to just keep growing it. The ultimate goal is that every CB student will be paired with a mentor when they become a student, because we've seen this is really helpful for our kids to have another advocate in their corner. Absolutely. Well, research does show that for young people in foster care and aging out of foster care, having that supportive, caring adult is key, if not the most important thing to have for those who are successful. Definitely. Right. So I'm really glad that you have built in a mentor program into your school. Do they have a curriculum, the mentors, to follow to help them you know, think through like, uh, well, if a young person has this goal, these are the steps you should go through to get to that goal. Or is it really more of just from their own experience, they're helping these young people learn what they need to learn? So that initial meeting that we had, we had kind of like a banquet at the school where we brought the mentor and the mentee and they met each other. That initial meeting, they go through this packet of activities that have a lot to do with what is mentorship? How can we support each other as the mentorship pair? And part of that was goal setting and breaking down goals that the student had and then talking about, you know, how can the mentor support in the small steps that need to be taken to reach each student's goal. So they do have that framework from their initial meeting to be working towards those goals. I think that's definitely at the forefront of the program. And most often we see that, you know, the most successful pairs where the student really will rely on the mentor to help them reach those goals are the ones that really focus on building that personal relationship first. Our students, they don't have reason to always believe that somebody is going to be trustworthy, an adult is going to be a trustworthy person in their lives. Right. So there right. there can be a little bit of growing pains in the beginning where the student might need the mentor to step up and prove I'm consistent, I'm here, I do what I say. And the mentors are trained around that to anticipate that. So I think the ones that make it through that hump really are the ones that have been able to provide that support to help the students reach their goals because they've been kind of proven trustworthy to the students. And how do you pair them then? Because that helps, I would think, with the trust issue is if Mm -hmm. the young person has some say in who they're paired with, what is your process? Basically, I have a conversation with anyone that's interested in being a mentor. We have pretty in-depth conversation about who they are, what their interests are. I can sort of see their personality. And I talk to the student as well. If I feel like I have somebody that might be a good fit, I talk to the student about who this person is. I have had mentors send me bios and pictures that the student can read through and look through and have a conversation with me. So since we're so small, that's how we've been doing it, kind of pairing it with those conversations. And then if you know they meet and it doesn't work out, they're not interested in continuing, we always have that conversation too. How did it go? Are you interested in continuing this relationship with your mentor? Do you feel like this is a person that could be supportive in your lives? Nine times out of 10, the student is on board. They had a great time. They want to see the person again. So that's basically how we've been doing the pairing. In the future, I think when we have more people, more mentors to choose from, which hopefully will be soon, we can do more of an event where we would bring a few people, have a few students, and then see, you know, they could sort of interact with more 
organic way and have the partnerships be formed that way. Sure. I've heard other programs do something like a speed dating. Type yes, of that's situation. what I was picturing too. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that opportunity. I mean, you're not talking for long, but you have a chance to talk with each other and get a sense of whether yeah. there's some compatibility and and then see who's matched up. I, you know, I think that's a fun way to do it. Yeah. If you have a lot, right? If, right. You have, if you have a lot of people. Right. And that's a goal that we have, definitely. But the student always has the opportunity to say, I wasn't really feeling it with them or, you know, whatever. They're not interested in pursuing the relationship. And is having a mentor a requirement for every young person there? No, it's not a requirement. It's definitely opt-in. We definitely encourage it and we spend time talking about what that means, but it's not required. And it's also not required because we just at this moment don't have enough mentors to give one to every student, but that's what we would like to do in the future. That's what we're working towards. You come to CB, if you would like a mentor, you know, within the first few months, we can partner you with one. We can start that relationship early. That's the goal. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that happens quickly for you. And you just started that program. I was just wondering, you may not have young people who have graduated because I'm curious if they maintain their relationship with their mentor or not, but you might not have anybody at that point yet. We have a handful who I know are still in touch with their mentors. We just had a graduation a few weeks ago, June 24th. So I know that those kids are still in touch with their mentors. Of course, that's not a great indication of, you know, if in six months they still will be. But as of now, I've been in touch with mentors who have been in touch with the kids. We had a couple mentors come out to the graduation to celebrate their mentees. And with technology, I mean, you can have some remote mentoring, but do you really strive for more of the in-person availability? Yes. I mean, when the pandemic had first hit, it was, of course, just such a shame because they had just met each other a couple weeks before. So I think for certain partnerships, having to transition to the online format, the relationships weren't there yet for that to be a more seamless transition. But with others, they really hit it off and they were able to sort of Zoom for a few months. We did have students meet up with mentors to go on a walk or to get coffee and sit outside. We had people work around it. But overall, it's definitely a more effective program if you're able to meet in person on a regular basis, I would say. Well, it sounds like a terrific program. I know we're We're approaching the end of our time together. So I wanted to ask a question about your founders and how it came about that CB Community Schools was founded. Mm -hmm. And I also am curious, why schools, plural? (laughs) (laughs) So yes, CB basically is a community-based alternative for students in the child welfare system. So we were founded basically as a response to the fact that so many youth aging out of foster care, as you know, don't have the support that they need to be successful. One fact that is really striking to me is that in Philadelphia, 47% of youth in care end up in a residential care facility. That number is huge. So basically, we are a small community-based alternative for students to stay in their communities and not be sent away to these placements. And we have, you know, a healing-centered approach to make sure we are engaged with the student to make sure that that does not happen. So that's basically why we were founded. 
to serve this population of students. And we are schools, plural, kind of in a hopeful way because our goal going forward is to expand. And to us, expansion doesn't look like a bigger school. It looks like more small schools. We want to replicate the model definitely around the city of Philadelphia. Like I said, our kids travel very far to get to us. And I think they'd be better served if we had more locations. And even beyond that, we want to go into different cities. We think our model really works. And I think our model can be replicated and implemented for a lot more students than we're able to serve right now. We have a lot of people who listen to this program. Who knows, some from foundations, some from you know, organizations that are looking to expand themselves or to, you know, to be able to do something maybe like what you do. Mm -hmm. If somebody wanted to contact you to pick your brain about your school, to find out more about the structure so that, hey, maybe we can set one up too. Mm -hmm. How would they reach out to you or somebody there to have that conversation? Yeah. I mean, we absolutely welcome that conversation. Our school's phone number is on our website and you can reach out to me directly. My email is just sbaldessari at cbcommunityschools.org. And, you know, we also have an info email address that can be reached. So anything on our website, there's a number of ways to contact us. So we encourage and welcome anyone to do that. That's terrific. I absolutely believe and agree that your model could be applied elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Would love to see your program expand. I don't know if you're familiar with Open Table. Mm -mm, no. It's a model of community adult support of young people in foster care. Mm -hmm. And there is an organization called Open Table. But what they do is they help other people start open tables of their own in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so basically, it's bringing together several different adults from your community to support one foster youth. Oh, wow. So it's like a group mentor type of program. Yeah. And they have a model for how it's all pulled together. I can also envision, just throwing it out there, that you could have a model that you support other people in starting. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, legally and all that, what that could look like, but just a thought, who knows where that could go. Right. And that open table sounds amazing and definitely very similar to what we're trying to do as a community school, mm -hmm. just coming together to support the small number of students that we serve. But we are definitely looking to expand and replicate our model. So all conversations about that are very welcome. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, if you're interested, Contact CB Community Schools, cbcommunityschools.org, and look up all that information, and you can contact them directly. And so with that, I think we're going to have to come to a close. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Sam, and I'm really, really glad that you're able to join me today to have the conversation. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Lynn. Moving forward. Thank you. I really oh, appreciate welcome. it. You're very welcome. Well, for those who have listened to the podcast to the end, thank you for doing so. As you know, we put these out every couple weeks or so. So just keep tabs on either your podcast distributor or come to the website agingoutinstitute.org and look for our podcast link. Thanks very much. And we'll talk to you next time.